you know, when we look at the, um, the mythos and the mythology of the hero's path and being able to become a wounded healer or, or what I like to call a tender hearted warrior, it's going to require that we leave our place of comfort. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap, a podcast featuring Bhavani Sylvia Maki, an international yoga teacher, musician, and author of the Yogi's Roadmap, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra as a Journey to Self-Realization. I'm Shanae Trudeau, a student of Bhavani and a teacher of yoga. These are conversations from the heart. The Yogi's Roadmap podcast explores yoga as a journey of compressed evolution off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Bhavani believes that engaging in the full science and art of yoga uplifts us, deepens our connection with authentic self and to the source of joy within for personal growth and deep transformation. Bhavani Sylvia Maki has been studying the art and science of yoga for nearly 40 years. In her teaching, she interweaves the insights she has gathered into a holistic exploration of the microcosmic and macrocosmic self. Dedicated to exploring yoga in its complete expression, her teachings are steeped in the traditions of Patanjali's classical eight-limbed yoga, with an emphasis on integrity of alignment and the use of yoga as a powerful tool for healing. This project was conceived out of the desire to have more, deeper, intimate conversations with my teacher, and a request from one of Bhavani's own teachers, Rama Joyti Vernon, who once said to her, let's get you out of the jungle and into the world. Bhavani lives on the island of Kauai, Hawaii with her husband Ray and their son Nico. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap Podcast, off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Yeah. Welcome back. I'm so thrilled to be here with you again on this podcast, Bhavani. Thanks for having me, Shanae. Yeah, it's really a great honor and a great joy. So throughout your trainings, you talk a lot about family and cultural patterns and habits. And I'm really interested in this for me personally. And I also want to know um, about this piece because you say, and it's probably you've taken it from somewhere, but about this seven generations of stuff to work through in this lifetime, because really, honestly, for me, that's where I'm at in this lifetime. You know, I'm here to do the work, whatever it takes to move beyond those ingrained cultural habits and patterns and familial tendencies. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> and right now it's like the eternal present moment divine. But there is, you know, when we look at the um the mythos and the mythology of the hero's path and being able to 
become a wounded healer or or what I like to call a tender-hearted warrior, it's going to require that we leave our place of comfort. Right? So, you know, it's when I when I think about it, it's like to really understand that there is a perfect progression. It's like you're in your home and then there's a psychological phase. I was reading about this in psychology today that around 13 or 14 or the early teens, um, the, the neurology starts to shift. And where kids for the first seven years, they learn through mimicry and then they start to develop their own kind of emotions and their emotions tend to be extreme. There's also neuroscience behind that. They want to understand that they can have their own feelings, their own needs, and that as um, erratic and extreme as they are, they will still be loved. Hopefully we have that situation, not always. Um, And then in those early teen years, the brain chemistry starts to shift. And those teenagers, they stop actually listening to the immediate family. And they want to get away. They just want to, you know, they start closing the room, the, the door to the room. They start paying more attention to the feedback from the culture and the society. So it's very interesting because this happens on a neurological level. And so that discomfort in the home is what gets us to step out of the fold and then go and, as Rumi says, unfold our own myth. And so when we do that, I know in my case, I did everything opposite, which is really just the same (laughs) in some ways, because it's very much reactionary and that's, you know, that's normal, but we, we kind of become untethered and we go to another extreme. And this is a way that we can start to get contrast and to feel ourselves outside of what Patanjali calls in the fourth sutra. This is Vritti Sarupyamitaratra. So these are the projections and the expectations that have been put on us as far as our value. And we might start to look into the archetype that we're carrying. You know, are we the dutiful child? Are we the rascal? Are we the black sheep? Are we the pretty one, the compliant one? Um, you know, are we the, the, uh, the champion, et cetera. <clears throat> so we might start to look into the archetype that we're carrying and begin to discern like, well, what, what was the value that was, what was I told about as far as my value and what is my true value and how is this story untrue? Where has this expectation been put where I always fell short? Or maybe I measured up to that expectation, but I felt false inside. I felt like an imposter. So we kind of need to get out of the community and the culture and even the family. And really, um, I think everybody would do well to live somewhere else and especially to go to another country. I mean, it was very interesting for me because I, you know, came from, I'm first generation American and I have a Northern European mother and a Southern European father, excuse me. So they're very different cultures. Um, And then, 
you're in the milieu of the American culture, which is really a melting pot, but it also has its own signature. And so then you're starting to say, well, how much of this is my mother? How much of this is my father? When I was in Finland, I didn't feel like a fit, like a true Finn. When I was in Greece, I wasn't a true Greek. When I'm in the US, I'm not a true American. And then I saw the blessing behind that. You know, and that's that's the process of maturation where it's like we can see the we we get to kind of be a connoisseur and take the pieces and the parts that are really alive for us and integrate them. And then also, of course, really study the aspects that are um, confining and really to really understand that, you know, our universal nature, we have a universal soul. And I love how Patanjali speaks about this, even, um, you know, in the value system, a lot of that is cultural. You know, so what, what we might perceive to be virtuous in one culture might seem abhorrent in another. So that sense of leaving home of going out into the world, of trying on a new environment, feeling yourself in a different place is a really important um, important aspect of discovering who we are. There's this story that's told about us. And behind, behind every myth, there is a truth as well. So we may discover that, oh yeah, these are actually parts of myself but I get to own them and I get to embrace them. And so, so much of it is looking at the, the constellations of who we see ourselves to be and the constellations of our immediate family, our family of origin, our community, our you know, maybe we live in a blue state or a red state, which country we live in, and, and even the era in which we live. Um, that's really fascinating as well. And, you know, for, for those astrology students, we'll see that in more of the outer planets, there's generational shifts that happen and that occur. Certainly, you know, the 20s, the roaring 20s, the 60s, then, you know, the 70s became like the, um, you know, very, very um, self-focused. It was kind of one of the more indulgent phases. We'll look at these different eras that are occurring and seeing how they're shaping and forming us as well. Perhaps the best way, because these questions are never truly resolved. I mean, this is a this is a multi-layered question, and I'm speaking in generalities, but these questions are never truly resolved. And this is part of the innovation and the advancement of the collective consciousness on the individual level. Now, when you're dealing with familial issues, excuse me, there's even more complexities. You know, is there just the general neuroses <laughs> that we all, you know, as, as Rama would say, wrestling with angels? 
And then are there, you know, personality disorders that you've encountered, or there might even be within the community, a sort of, um, you know, um, oblivions to stereotypes and prejudices and, you know, those kinds of things. Like I grew up at the University of Chicago, which was a really interesting community. There were the most Nobel Prize winners in the world at that time. I went to school with all the professor's kids at the laboratory school. And so there was a really high level of intellect and a really low integration of the psyche. And we saw it in the generation of the kids. There was a lot of struggle with the kids because of, um, you know, there was just this huge blind spot. And now many of those children have, you know, forged a new path and they're the new professors. And some of them were in Obama's, um, you know, inner office and things like that and really became innovators. But looking at those things, you know, I remember uh, speaking years ago with my therapist at the time, and he shared that his professor, when he was studying psychology at CIS, his professor of psychology, who he, he got really soft when he spoke about him. And he said he was just the kindest, most loving, compassionate man. And he shared one day in class that after you know, 30, 40 years of offering uh, therapeutic counseling, that what he noticed is that most people's neuroses died along with their parents. And just hearing that, <laughs> I mean, of course it's bittersweet, right? But just hearing that kind of gives you a sense of reprieve, like you don't have to wait. Um, it takes, if there's personality orders in, um, involved, like a personality disorder, it's never that person's fault. So that can take decades to really see and to begin to tease it apart. Now, I will say, um, you know, many, many therapists will will accord with this, you know, and I've heard it from many therapists that when you visit family, you should never stay more than five days if it's a tenuous situation, because that's when we start to really revert. So yeah, you know, looking at that stuff and certainly, you know, at the same time where a lot of things die with the parent, so does our um, like our opportunity to listen. I mean, we can we can shift the blame to them, but as long as we're in that place of blame, we block our own healing, and life will make us more compassionate because we understand how challenging life is and that they didn't have the tools that we had. But at the same time, um, you know, we have to take on, we'll start to see those characteristics in ourselves, <clears throat> And it's not about shutting them out. No qualities are really bad, but it's about holding them in balance. And a lot of, his, uh, of it is the 
the self-talk that's happening within. So if we can start to look at that self-talk and see like, where is this coming from? Is this something that I really subscribe to? Or is this an embedded pattern in my neurology that is just something that I've inherited? So before we can have transformation, we need to have acceptance. And with acceptance comes humility. You know, um, we're, we're all working through this stuff. And this is the way that we grow and we evolve. But I definitely believe that it's really difficult to explore these deeper questions until we remove ourselves from the constellation. And it's kind of like, you know, taking a drive out into a place where there's no light pollution. And when we look into the shadow self, it's it's kind of like, you know, because the shadow holds all of these subconscious imprints. It's kind of like looking into a starry night with a sense of wonder. And you realize, wow, there's there's so many patterns and we can be curious about them and appreciate their intricacy and their beauty um, from from a sense of being the seer as opposed to being really enmeshed in those patterns. But these are complex questions and it's really the journey of the psychonaut to begin to question like, well, it's not about, it's not about blocking the patterns, but it's about understanding the patterns and being able to utilize them in a way that is really um, productive, right? So we can look at the third sutra, second sutra, yoga vritti nirodaha. Like there's oscillations of consciousness. They come up as emotions, which then present as physiological changes. Then we have our thoughts and our ideas, like maybe our feelings weren't honored our our points of views weren't honored. Maybe we, you know, we had to acquiesce because our survival depended on it as children. <clears throat> but you know, we we can we can start to see like, all right, so there's all these oscillations of consciousness. There's all of these points of view. Which ones are productive? which ones are unproductive and then we have the choice to participate or not participate with them and to really um you know it's it's a lot of you know potentially speaks about it as like clearing the imprints in the storehouse and we can think of the vritti as being um you know Sometimes they're aklishtaha, sometimes they're productive, and sometimes they're klishtaha, sometimes they're maladaptive. And to begin to discern which ones are actually interference and which one, you know, and it's really up to us because interference can then become coherence. It's all raw information for us to look at. Yeah. So, I mean, 
we're nurtured, we have nature, and then we learn to grow ourselves and hopefully develop a community. You know, there's our, there's our family of origin. And then there's our chosen family of people um, who have the same intention. You know, some of us, some of us may be born into a family, which is really not asking the deeper questions. And then we come in, you know, and we're living in this, in this, uh, culture, and then we need to go find another culture. And I think that's really natural. That's, that's the potency of Sangata and spiritual community. Then when we share our stories and it's always, you know, meant to be done in the, under the lens of metaphysical teachings, because it gives us a bigger perspective. And it's so profound because the metaphysical teachings, they apply to everybody in a really specific way. And yet it's written by this impartial parties, such as a Rishi or a sage. And it like begins to touch us. You know, it's, I think it's, maybe I shared this adage. It's an old Chinese adage <clears throat> that salt only burns where there's already an open wound. So, you know, when something hits us, it's going to trigger us and it's not, it's not what's wrong. There's also kind of a new, maybe, um, fad going on where there's, um, there's, it's like sexy to be wounded (laughs) and there's, and, and, and listen, you know, it's, it's all part of the maturation process, but to remember that the project is about healing and about taking all of these narratives and feeling unified within those narratives without blocking them out. But we get to tell our own story and um, tell a bigger story. And that's that's so much of the process. So in yoga, we're learning that, you know, in our bodies, like, wow, I can make different shapes. I can even um, embody the archetypes. Many of the postures are animals or deities that we can try on these different postures or attitudes. Um, in psychotherapy, certainly we're going to be unwinding those stories and looking at where you know, maybe there was a lot of self-blame or a lot of blame on the other person. Again, you know, the acceptance, letting go of the blame because the blame blocks the healing. And it also, um, it, in, it, it infantilizes us coming into a state of compassion and of humility And then really, you know, like, what is, what do I have power over and what don't I have power over and watching when, um, you know, kind of a red flag is when we're trying to convince somebody else or somebody else is trying to convince us, you know, there's, there's, um, having that acceptance even for our own content and acceptance for somebody else's and then seeing where how those two can overlap 
and create the magic of, of growth and evolution, which is what we know as the science of yoga, right? So we have all of these modalities. Was that helpful? Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm taking notes (laughs) (laughs) as we're here doing this. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yes. Thank you so much for that. I wonder, um, yeah, there was something that you touched on that, that had me spark on this for myself. I have a deep fear of messing up. Um, but what you were saying is like, what, like, and what I know to be true is learning happens when we make mistakes, not by actually getting it right. And that it is a lifetime process. Yeah, you know, it was it was I think last year that I um kind of had this aha moment. Um and part of it was going through you know the um oh you had a great word for it. I can't remember what it was, but for menopause, what was it? Oh, that's right. Um climacterian or something? Yeah, climacteric. Climacteric. So, you know, my my nervous system, my whole organism is changing. And I found that I just didn't have the bandwidth anymore to be so worried about the future. Like I just needed to work on settling my own nervous system. You know, my hormones are exploding inside of me. And also this sense of like, okay, you know, how, like now that I'm in the I'm I'm at the climax and I'm starting on the decline <laughs> as far as in the world. Like I'm not getting younger. Um, <clears throat> you know, those questions about like, well, how am I going to make it work? And, you know, there's also just this, this narrative that we have to have it all together and all figured out. And we should have, you know, a lot of savings in the bank. And, you know, those of us who are on the yoga path as <laughs> Krishnamacharya's teacher. Rama Mohan Brahmachari, you know, when he, when he agreed to teach Krishnamacharya, um, you know, at the end of the, the, the tenure of being a student is when the teacher would exact the payment. And he said, in payment, I want you to be a yoga teacher. And Krishnamacharya had like three PhDs. He had offers, you know, in really secure position, kind of tenured positions and basically by becoming a yoga teacher he was doomed to a life of poverty okay so that's <laughs> <laughs> so you know those of us like who are teaching yoga there's very few of us who are actually bankrolling it and it's you know that's kind of a beautiful thing because it keeps us offering you know it keeps us offering and it keeps us growing and keeps us learning as well um, you know, there's there's really no retirement <laughs> for for somebody who's um, sharing this kind of work. And, you know, so I was just like, you know, all right, all I got to do right now is just like focus on this moment. And this sense of having to make these big choices, that these these choices were going to be for the rest of my lifetime. And that I could make the wrong choice. I had this light bulb moment, which was like, 
there you really can't make a wrong choice. And you can always change your mind. You can always go in a new direction. And even when you do, you know, lay out a path for yourself, what do they say? God laughs, you know, there's the, that's the mystery that's, that's unfolding through you and through your experience. So, you know, what I would say is, you know, a question, a wonderful question, when we start to do that, when we start spinning and the gears start grinding in our mind is to just stop and, um, you know, reflect if I could tell my younger self something right now, what would it be? And so Shanae, if you could tell your younger self something right now, what would you tell her? Relax. (laughs) (laughs) Have fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's going to be okay. And make mistakes because, you know, you know, mistakes in, in quotes, because it's not really that bad, you know? And, you know, I love this too. It's like, they say fail magnificently. Do it with panache. Yeah. Right. And of course, you know, we don't want to injure or harm anybody. And, you know, we have in that built in buddhi, that built in conscience, which is going to help us navigate that. But, you know, the buddhi, as we spoke about before, it's the receptacle of our sorrows. So it's that sense of like, um, you know, learning from the past mistakes. Oh my God, am I just playing out the same scenario again? I, you know, I, I hear the, the voice of this relative or whatever, but when we go into the buddhi space, which is in our heart, the buddhi doesn't hold blame and it doesn't doubt its own capacity for resilience, for creativity, you know, and it's that sense again of like looking at the constellation, this sense of wonder and realizing how finite you are, but also when you're looking at this big, infinite, um, you know, vast field, also this feeling of being part of something bigger. So there is, you know, that's something that we really kind of lost in, in our, in our modern culture is that reverence for the mystical and for the unseen hand. All of us have guides. Some of us have chosen guides, you know, like Patanjali, we call him our godfather, right? At our yoga shala. And we have the wisdom that is there. Um, but we all have these, these guides that are with us and they can only really intervene or help us when we invite them in. So even that sense of the invocation at the beginning of a practice, we may rush through it, but you're calling all angels, you're calling in all forces and what we can offer in return is our sense of um, devotion. Trust is something that's instinctual, but it'll it'll start to build. And when we look hindsight and we're like, God, I didn't think I was going to get through that, but here I am. Look at all of the grace that came my way. So acceptance, 
humility, compassion, and then, you know, realizing that there is a a higher power, whether we call it love or providence or grace that invites it in. And grace starts as this inner voice or this inner feeling that can turn a moment into something better. So perhaps all of life is doing that is just kind of like, you know, um, forcing these issues to the surface and cracking us open so that we can really start to see where where we don't have sovereignty and where we do. And then where in that sovereignty, we don't have a sense of, um, of relationship with ourself or skill with ourself. And, you know, those difficult moments are really the moments that grow us. And when we fall to our knees, you know, I love what, um, why can't I think of his name? I think it's Bhagavan Das. And he would say, when the shit hits the fan, put your head on the ground, which is basically a pranam or a genuflection. That's when you can, you can pray or you can invoke or you can say, I don't know how to do this. Please let me feel some grace, you know? And there's, it's, it's such a powerful, powerful moment where we can really let go into that. Um, yeah, so second sutra is really like feeling into our state about things. And even these ideas of like, what is a mistake? <laughs> and you get to do retakes all the time. Yeah. And realize that, you know, it's like, you know, when we look at the tradition of, of yoga and the, the acharyas, char means to go and ya means really there was that aspect of wandering, you know, that we're, we're always, um, it's not so much that we're searching, but we're seeking, we're seeking. And that's, that's, that's where the new pathways open. And we're probably always going to feel like we're on the fringe because, you know, yeah, we're, we're a product of our culture, but we're also looking to um, be part of more of a universal culture. So it's really, um, you know, seeing our, our individual story and of, again, psychotherapy is so valuable for that because we can learn, you know, there were stories about myself that I didn't want to share. I thought, oh my God, if people know that I've been molested or that I've been raped, like they're going to look at me like I'm damaged goods and doing the, um, you know, the, the trauma release work and doing the asana and all of that helped me to realize that those stories don't define who I am, but they inform me and that I can share those things. And instead of, you know, it's like that it said that the secret keeps us, we don't keep the secret that, you know, then we're, we're holding it and there's, there's no possibility for healing that when we can share it and share it in a place where it doesn't trigger us anymore. Um, there, there's a real healing within the, within the South and within the culture, the community, and we're going to realize that we're not alone. 
that as much as it's an individual path. So the sense of right and wrong doesn't go far enough. Right and wrong according to who? Yeah. According to when? (laughs) And where? And where? Exactly. Yeah. Time, space, causality. I just, I want to, oh, go ahead, please. Well, it just takes time to grow into that trust. And even that trust, um, it's going to be tested all the time, right? Because that's what, what strengthens us. And that's what really opens the door for the magic. Yeah. A question that you posed to me um, a couple months ago was to ask myself, do I need to make those big decisions right now? And that was just such a such a profound question for me because most of the time the answer is no. <laughs> like it doesn't need to be so black and white or, you know, all over here or all over there um, because I do. I mean, I I really get stuck in that perfectionism like okay I have to have it all together it has to look a thing but it's you know a certain way um but yeah that was a a profound question perfectionism is a tough one isn't it yeah we'll do a whole episode on that (laughs) a whole episode on perfectionism yeah and perfectionism blocks us again from true creativity but yeah um we tend to, uh, because when it is a moment of urgency, we're going to know. We are going to know. So how much of this is this pressure? Again, you know, so many of us are really poisoned by the social media and the, the, the doctoring of the pictures and this picture perfect story. Like, here's the story I'm telling about myself. Um, that that's the narrative that we need to begin to explore and really, you know, visit, well, what, what's right for me? And sometimes I don't know. And that's a beautiful place because when you don't know, and when you stop trying to know is when you're going to start to really see, and you're going to get those gut knowings. It'll be a full body knowing you know, when it's right. So I think it's Satchitananda who said, if you're not sure, then don't make a decision. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and maybe I'm going to go here next, or I'm going to do this, but like, you know, this is, you know, warranting that you don't have to sign like a 30 year contract, but most often I don't think that's the case. These are just the choices that we're making in our life. Now, on the other hand, I would like to say, because I tend to live in some very Um, crunchy communities, that there's also this um, kind of, I don't know, this, 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 this culture of being non-committal. So, you know, we, we do want to be aware of that as well. Yeah. We make, maybe make a choice and say, okay, I'm going to do this for six months, or I'm going to do it for a year. And I find it can be really helpful for myself to 
kind of give myself a phase of time. And of course it can be reevaluated, but just watching my own tendency where I may have one foot out the door all the time. Yes. Thank you for touching on that. That's really important. <laughs> I wonder, maybe I'll ask you a question. What do you think it is that, um, right? And maybe it's right now, maybe it's a generational thing, but there's definitely this arising of, of um, yeah, non commitment, the uh, lack of commitment. Commitment phobia. Yes, that exactly. What have you noticed? You know, I'm not going to categorize it as right or wrong. I can see, um, you know, maybe this is where we're starting to dismantle. You know, there's there's these different generations that are happening, which I don't even know. I should probably Google them the different generation, the millennials and the, I don't even know them all where, um, you know, I was reading though, or someone relayed to me that one of these more recent generations later than my own, they're not so much interested in having a house and having things, but they're more interested in having experiences. So they're more likely to um, you know, invest in having kind of peak experiences without creating the 401k etc. Um, so can you, can you repeat the question again? Cause I just want to, yeah, it's about commitment phobia. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's that aspect of like, okay, well, this was what I was told was a value and I've seen the bubble burst and I've seen people lose everything. And so I need to find my own way. Um, so there's that aspect, which is probably really productive. And then there's certainly the aspect of the, I, I noticed this with my nieces, even like 15, 20 years ago, they speak so quickly. I can barely understand them. And I think it's the age of technology where there's this rapid fire and you're just swiping. It's like, you're swiping, you're swiping, you're swiping. And I, I used to write like these long, beautiful posts and really take, I was like writing a book, you know, and someone told me, you know, most people don't even read them because they don't have the attention span. And I was like, okay, that's really great. Like I need to um, truncate it down to a sutra so that, you know, something will land for a person there, there's a, a beauty to being succinct, but I, you know, so there's that kind of a culture where there's just like swiping, 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 scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And, you know, I guess we'll have to see how that works out, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there, there is a beauty to commitment and certainly, you know, I'm a, I'm a classicist in that way. And I know that it works in committing to, um, you know, a, a teaching, committing to a, a stream and we're all going to be, it's, it's going to be, become more eclectic because that's the nature yoga is like a living science we've all heard that adage about digging shallow wells, 
And I think, you know, when we dig a deep well, we're going to find that all of these other things that we're learning or that we're interested in, if it's really a, a viable and pragmatic um, path, it's going to, it's not going to refuse those strands either. So it's a little bit challenging. I mean, as a teacher, I see, I really see where things get watered down, however, because everybody's trying to be so slick at the same time. Like there's this pressure that you do something new and different. And by doing that, oftentimes we may not really have a, a depth of understanding. Um, and it can water down the practices. And then we also, you know, there's a beauty of having, you know, it's like, then we come home, then we come home and we can, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. And it's not that we're standing where they are, but, but there's, there's a, a generational growth that's occurring. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And that leads me right into the next question of taking a yoga class and having a yoga practice, because you've spoken about the difference um, in your trainings so that we go to class. But when we come home, that's a yoga practice. Can you say more about that distinction? Absolutely. Um, you know, my, uh, my teacher, Patabi Joyce, I think he said, like, you know, first you go to class for like seven years. And then you're able to really take on a personal practice. And I mean, a completely independent practice, um, you know, and of course, you would revisit the teacher. But there, there is, you know, well, we're going to, the, the teachings are going to meet us where we're at. So we need to hear things many different times. And of course, if the teacher is worth their own salt, their, their teachings are going to be um, evolving as well. And it can take, I mean, I've had students like students for 15, 20 years, and I didn't see something. And was it always there? And I just didn't notice it? Or was it being revealed, right? So. You know, the beauty of having a teacher, someone who's really skilled, you know, and again, you know, somebody wouldn't even dream of teaching unless they had a 10-year dedicated practice or even a 20-year dedicated practice. And again, this is assuming that you've had all of those years before with, with a teacher who's also been raised up to... Um, to learn how to see. It takes a long time to, to actually see the student. So, you know, having, having that, that support in the Shanti pot, you know, we say, um, like we've hired a teacher to take us where we wouldn't go on our own. So the teacher is going to, you know, a, a really good teacher is going to pull stuff out of you that you didn't know that you had. And they're also in their resonance field. They're just by being with them and seeing the way that they move or the way that they speak or their, even their own 
like development of inquiry, it um, it infuses you, right? The mirror neurons and all of that. It, it, it's something that we we start to we start to um, become penetrated with even more deeper. So we need that time of of incubation. We need to learn certainly the very basic um, actions and principles and things like that, then the deeper layers, then the process of inquiry, and to develop that skill so that then when we practice, we're able to explore that on our own. And I remember practicing once on my own, and you know, I was studying Iyengar yoga and looking at some of his writings and and I was just like, oh my God, like how did he discover these things? How is that even possible? And just by asking that question, I was like, oh, he was paying attention. He was really feeling what was happening in his body. So we learn, you know, in a yoga class to see through the lens of the teacher. And this is, you know, all the way in the sutras, it says it goes all the way, um, all the way back to source, you know, we're sourcing from source, which is the capacity for learning and innovation and the natural coherency, the, the, the response that's already happened. It's already our living being, right? And then when we take personal practice, we begin to feel into it and we become curious on our own as well. And that's where it really starts to grow within us. Then when we go back to class, we're paying attention that much more. And we might find one nugget. I mean, I would get a nugget and I suck on it. I mean, I'm still sucking on these nuggets and there's so many layers. Now, I do want to say that um, it doesn't mean that you have to go to class for seven years before you can have a personal practice. Taking things home and, and you know, most of yoga is just um, experiment and experience. So integrating that as well, but people often throw away that very Remember that, you know, someone who doesn't have a teacher is called an anatta, which is a misfortunate. They don't have access to a teacher and a teacher who's a mentor who really cares. Like you can go find a teacher online, but somebody who, who sees you, who appreciates you, who understands like your, your unique um, makeup having that is such a blessing. And that's the atha. That's where you're like, oh, I can be in the present and see things in the now and, and develop that. And then even come back and have a teacher where you can have dialogue about these things. So many classes, it's just like, you know, nowadays, um, you know, you're looking at a mirror, the teacher's looking at a mirror, class begins, class ends. um, And some of those teachers you know, they may be able to put their body in a lot of shapes, but maybe they don't have the level of personal inquiry or the social skills, you know, to be able to do that. So 
Yeah, picking the right teacher is so important as well. So we need those, we need those two together in order for it. I, I, okay. Be patient. Invest your time, right? Dirgakala. And sa means definitely, like two, really, a really, really long time. Um, satkara with sincerity. So with the right intention, with clarity, sevito, with earnestness, with diligence, with commitment. Okay, so there Patanjali says, if you're not committed, you're probably not going to get the results. So you do actually need to commit yourself. So choose wisely. wisely. Um, then with that, it, it naturally evolves into a self-sustaining and perpetuating practice. So we learn to support ourselves, but we have to be committed and we have to be, you know, have the right intention and be wholehearted. Um, you know, and even in a teacher-student relationship, there's going to be a honeymoon phase. And a lot of a lot of students, you know, that you've hired the teacher to take you where you wouldn't go on your own. And, you know, sometimes like when a teacher is like, hey, you know, this is this is what you need to work on. You know, somebody who's doing self-practice, they might only be doing what's easy for them. And they're like, no, this is this is really where your work is. Um, that student suddenly might not want to be working with that teacher because they're rubbing them the wrong way. But that's part of the anushasanam is going with the grain. And hopefully with a skilled teacher, um, you know, even if you're skilled, stuff is going to come up, you know, stuff is going to come up. But if we can, you know, have that kind of intimate relationship, a real connection, we can feel into the bigger love behind it. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. That. Thank you. So Thank as far so as like personal practice, what I would say to people is, um, you know, and sometimes I would do this in my classes. I'm sure you recall, we try something, try something, you know, I've been playing with or so how that, you know, was that interesting for you? And, you know, just by saying that, um, you know, not, did you like it? <laughs> it's not about always liking it. But was that interesting to you? And then, you know, students pretty much unanimously say yes. And I say, was it worth your time? Yes. And then I say, would you do it again? And then they'll often say, sometimes they'll say no, or they'll say yes. And I say, well, then that's a practice, you know, just take maybe two or three practices home with you. People tend to overdo. But you, everybody has five minutes, right? If you don't have five minutes, you don't have a life. And just by doing that little bit, we develop our own capacity for transmission within ourselves so that when we have those big decisions, 
we can actually listen not to the discursive mind, you know, the, the, the voices of what's right and wrong, but we can listen transmission into our own body of knowledge. And certainly, you know, when we go to class, we're learning transmission as well. And, you know, the teacher's telling us like, here it is, here's a clear action. Can you understand that? Can you receive that transmission um, intellectually? And then can you translate it into your own body? Can you open those pathways? And I love what Robert Svoboda says, you know, and it's it's that from the story of the Samatha Mudra, the churning of the ocean of milk, which is like the the psyche, which is which is often cloudy, you know, it's opaque. Um, that, but it's also milk, which is nourishing. And many yogis just live on on milk, you know, that's that's their 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 diet that we're learning to get the juices flowing and we're churning the juices in our brain and in our bodies. And that churning process is, is really important. Then we get the ghee, the clarified butter. <laughs> Thank you. I think this will be really helpful. I mean, this was, this was useful for me. So thank good, you. Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. So Take away. You can't make a wrong choice. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> and and uh, you're a perfect whatever it is. So just even seeing that sense of perfectionism blocks you from being something never before seen. And it takes a really, really long time to do the yoga. You know, it's, we so would like to check it off our list, right? But we all know that, you know, it's an endless process and something I've been really exploring in myself, um, you know, these sutras land. So they land on more and more nuanced layers as we start to go through the density, which is where we put a wall up and we can feel ourselves go into contraction and we'll either be offensive or defensive and just you know, feeling into our state as opposed to going into the thoughts and into the interference, just feeling into our state um, is that, oh gosh, I lost my train of thought here. Just a second. Um, oh, I think I lost it. <laughs> okay. It'll come to me at some point, maybe next session. <laughs> but, yeah. um, oh, it was so... You were saying it takes a long time. There's the the time and instead of going into our brain head, the feeling of it actually yeah. in our... Yeah, even, you know, these, just that these ideas of of, of perfection are just that, they're ideals. And, um, you know, are they productive or are they unproductive again? I think that's the, yeah. that's the nugget at it. Anything else? Oh, now I remember. <laughs> 
So, Aprayatna Shaitilyananta Samapatipyam Sutra um, 247, I believe it is. It's natural that when we make an effort, some anxiety or strain arises. So, relax the anxiety and maintain the integrity of your action. So we can even peel that back further, which is, um, you know, we're learning to lean into something bigger, to know that we are being guided. You know, as much as it's been challenging, there is some kind of, whether we call it grace or or whatever it is, um, something that is holding us. So then we can feel into the greater integrity that life is growing us, right? And even if we have a perfect plan, there's going to be, you know, I, I remember there's this beautiful story, um, the three questions, and I'm trying to remember who the Russian writer was, but it's a little boy and he's he's like, what are the three most important things in life? And he goes on this journey and as he's going on this journey and he has this trajectory, this occurs, this emergency. And so the right thing to do is to drop what he's doing to, and to help this person, or it's actually like a panda in the story. And that the moment is going to pull out of us what we need. You know, it's like, maybe you're, you're going here, but, but somebody, somebody's, you know, been hit on the side of the road over here. Of course, you're going to get out of the car and you're going to aid that person and you're going to facilitate it. So there is a greater integrity. There is a larger thing that's happening and and the moment is, you know, going to pull it out of us. So we can lean into that greater integrity. And even, this has been something I've been exploring within myself. Like it's natural that Anxiety arouses out of the effort. Relax, slacken that effort, slacken the anxiety, and lean into the greater integrity. So even watching when I'm in a posture, and of course, I've I've got like the, the voice of my teachers in my head and in my body, and wanting to be such a good student and wanting to be such a good yogini and wanting to do my best, which are all great assets, but then also um, seeing where that wanting and that grasping and that reaching comes from a pattern of strain. So then I've been become really curious in the postures even and, and bringing more the element of movement. Like, how do I go into the pose? You know, how do I straighten my knee? And then, how, and then just playing with straightening it and unstraightening it without, but, you know, I, I am well-versed in the technique. So, you know, I can, I can loosen the grip on the technique because I've, you know, put in 40 years, 50, you know, so, um, and, and just to feel the spontaneity all, you know, without even trying to define it or even to just to, to feel into it. And that I can actually respond not from a place 
of anxiety or tension. And then it really becomes a place of play. That sense of play, which keeps the harmony of the tensions. And that's the next sutra. Then the yogi is no longer assaulted by the poles of opposites. Right, wrong, good, bad, um, profit, loss, compliment, criticism, shame, and blame. And we don't even have to, um, like, um, uh, take away the potential <clears throat> from those extremes. We can feel those polarities, like masculine, feminine. And then feel the dance that is happening in between. So perhaps another takeaway is to see or to, and see, of course, implies all of our senses. Because when we use all of the senses, we become empathic and we're compassionate. To notice when we're moving from a pattern of strain versus from a pattern, versus from an open field of curiosity. Thank you so much. So much of that, again, is feeling into your own state. And can we Lean into our own integrity. Yes, I want to do it perfect. Yes, I want to do it right. Yes, I want to lead the way. And realize that like those are really good um, qualities to have. And yet we have to hold them in a bigger understanding, leaning into our own integrity and the greater integrity. Okay, onward. <laughs> Don't forget. Relax. Relax. It's going to work out. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And there's going to be so many opportunities. You know, we don't want to be so tense that we miss those opportunities. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's angels. Yogananda says, if we could really see we would see that we are surrounded by angels and sages and light beings all around us. But oftentimes we don't see. Thank but you I so much. You. <laughs> I see. I feel them. I feel them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And pull them in, you know. Pull yeah. them in. And for those of you who think that sounds really airy fairy, it's that sense of like, you know, just putting out the call, even internally, like, um, you know, and that's when it's like, oh, you, you, and being open, right? Like being open instead of for interference, being open for transmission, um, 
having a smile, having eye contact, having actual contact with people right now that we're out of quarantine, we, you know, getting off the screen, but actually having direct communion with people. And you're going to be like, oh my God, like there's constellations, there's new constellations forming all the time. Then there's that person who you've been looking for this and that person has a contact. And it's just like, you know, we just start connecting the dots and that's where we really start to unfold the new, the new design, the redesign. Like you've said many times, the call is the answer. Oh, nice. What a joy. Thank you for being in conversation. Oh, thank you, Shanae. I feel really uplifted. Namaskara. Namaskara. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take these teachings on for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. For more information about Bhavani Maki and her online and in-person teachings, including the Yoga Sutra Wisdom School, online Patanjali Yoga Sutra mentorship, and her continuing classes and trainings, please visit www.bhavanimaki.com. That's B-H-A-V-A-N-I-M-A-K-I. You will find many resources, including sound bites of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra Samadhi Pada and Sadhana Pada for free, as well as a free yoga class. Thank you again. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the heart. Please join us as we continue to walk this revelatory path into deep personal inquiry through yoga as a path toward our unique, true spiritual awakening. Jalaruha Mitra Jashatru Netram Kalusha Pai